So I thought, look, all right, I'm going to raise a euro for every meter I climb. And if I can climb a million meters, I'm going to try and raise a million euros. And basically like that, I called my dad back in Perth and I said, look, dad, I've got a concept for 2022. I'm going to Everest 52 times. I'm going to climb a million meters of elevation and I'm going to raise a million bucks. And he said, do you think you can actually do that? And I said, I'm not sure, but I'm going to give it a crack. G'day Legends and welcome back to the Press Room Podcast presented by Zwift, episode 68 Legends and I have to say I'm starting to think about the 100th but I don't know what to do, who do I get on for the 100th episode? Let me know, send me a message in uh, on the Press Room Instagram um, and yeah I have to start thinking about it, I need some suggestions, who should get the mantle of the 100th uh, episode? But anyway, today's guest is... Oh, guys, this one is one of my favorite episodes I've done uh, in a long time. And I've had some epic guests on the pod. But Jack, ultra cyclist, a.k.a. Uh, Jack Thompson, um, as he prefers to be called, he is our guest. And I tell you what, he is an amazing human. He's got some great stories. And if you haven't heard of Jack before, check out his Instagram and his YouTube channel and you'll see all about him, all what he does He's basically a professional cyclist that undertakes crazy records, um, chasing um, world records, chasing fastest known times, creating his own adventures, and you just think there's no way you can do that, mate. But he does them, and he also does them for good causes, raising money for charities uh, and not-for-profits that, um, you know, sort of cover and... um, promote things that really mean a lot to him personally like uh, sort of the mental health space for exercise which is a really big one and also one that I think is really important and from all these journeys that he's had and and all these crazy adventures he's done he's got some amazing stories and we basically tap into that we talk about his Tour de France journey uh, where he did the um, challenge back in 2021 racing the Tour de France um, and then, of course, the Everesting Meters Gain Challenge last year, the Space Odyssey, that he calls it, and the Cannonball Challenge in Japan that he just finished um, earlier this year. So we talk about all of that and then also chat about his upcoming participation at Unbound. Now, of all the guests I've had, there's some guests that I'm sure you would know are really good um, you know, conversationalists and quite bubbly and very talkative. Jack is definitely one of those. He's a really good speaker. He's got some great stories, and I know you guys would love this episode. So, um, yeah. But before we get stuck into that, Ed, thanks for tuning into the 7 Gravel Race coverage over on the weekend um, on the podcast Instagram. Hope you guys enjoyed some of the snippets. And yes, the race video is on its way. I've got the raw footage, thanks to Marco No, the filmmaker. Um, he is the master of all the filming stuff that happens at that race and many other uh, endurance races. But um, I've got the raw footage and I will be cutting in the race highlights package where we saw uh, Tiffany Cromwell and, of course, Tasman and Curvis get the victories. It's going to be amazing. The scenery, oh my lord, you guys will love it. So make sure you follow the uh, Press Room Podcast Instagram page and also the YouTube channel, because that's where the video will be uploaded. Okay, I've taken a breath, and now it's time to listen to this awesome episode with Jack Thompson, a.k.a. Jack Ultrasonics. All right, legends, I'll see you on the next one. One time, or a couple of minutes late, the osteo cancelled on me, so I'm good to go. Mate, 
good to go, but stiff as a board. That's it. Could have done with a little adjustment, but hey, that's it. What what does an osteo do? This sort of like bit of movement therapy, and is that sort of the guy? Yeah, it's sort of like a mix between um, like physio and chiropractic. So it's like uh, like the the concept is it's like a mix of both. Because if you if you crack somebody's back and the muscles are still stiff, then the muscles are just going to pull it into the wrong position again. But as an osteo, it's like working wholesomely to like loosen the muscles, then adjust it. It's it's a little bit witch doctor, but I find it's pretty good. <laughs> Works for you, yeah. Nice. Okay. What's on the what's on tap at the moment? What are you drinking there, by the way? Oh, these are like alcohol free lemon beers, like oh, uh, Clara. Yeah. Nice. These are not bad, actually. Yeah. There's more and more of those uh, types of drinks popping up, eh? The uh, yeah, the, the zero. Yeah. There's quite a few here, actually. Like. Not as many as in back in Oz, I imagine, but like there's the guy like drinking alcohol free beer here, still pretty taboo. Uh-huh. But you can still go and an old fellow will drink piss at 10 in the morning and that's pretty normal. <laughs> um, so these are like proper new school, but they're, uh, they're more like lagers as opposed to like an IPA or something. Yeah, yeah, that's my type of drink actually. Don't mind that. It, yeah, it, they're good. Um, down in Bustleton, they've got this place. Uh, I don't know if you would have been to. Basso since they put it there, but uh, a place called Shelter, and um, sure. right, it's right next to the jetty, mate. You know the big jetty. Um, yeah, Shelter Brewing Co. But, okay, um, we were there on uh, just on the weekend. I was there with some of the crew from Seven, um, mm-hmm. and uh, some of the guys from Over East. So I said, "Oh, you know, while you're here, we've got to go to Bustleton and go to uh, Shelter." Yeah, they had a really nice, um, like a, a zero hour. Um, beer was yeah it was a ripper good yeah not bad yeah yeah i reckon there's like opportunity to lock one in as a as a sponsor you know like try and get an alcohol free yeah bevy on board for like celebrations and Mm. like there's one like there's one in the u.s called um athletic brewing yeah athletic brewing mate i've might hang on hang on they're fucking good man i've got it Oh, you've got your bastard. Got the athletic brewing. You know why? Because I first saw, because, um, you know, Trek, he's, he's uh, sponsored by Athletic Brewing. Um, oh, is he? Yeah, yeah. So I think they sort of um, help him out. But uh, Athletic Brewing um, also have this program called Two for the Trails. And yeah. um, they donate 2% of their sales every year, which I think is, you know, it's in the millions back into oh, trails um, around the world. And, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, and I work for the Mundabi Trail Foundation. Uh, ah, nice. In Perth, and they sponsored us. And so they gave us... Yeah, right. Yeah, they gave us about 40000 bucks for one year um, wow. to help our trail management. Yeah, and then they send us, like, heaps of these drinks so we can bring them to our events. And I, t- yeah, I tell nice. you what, Athletic Brewing, you can get it from Coles. I mean, this is really plugging in now, but... Uh, <laughs> You could, they're actually good. This is the. I rate them, huh? Yeah. I had a few when I was in the States. And like, I reckon if you, like, I don't drink alcohol, but like, I used to. And I reckon, like, if you'd blindfolded me back in the day, I almost wouldn't have been able to tell the difference. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty close. And um, yeah, I think it's it's good, those drinks, because like I said, if you, if you don't drink alcohol, uh, but you're in an environment where people are, yeah, sometimes you just feel like, yeah. like you just feel like you don't, you know, you should yeah, be. Yeah, you feel like a, 
wet blanket. A little like, bit, yeah, which sucks. And you can, but having something like that is kind of a cool alternative to break that down. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'll, ha- I'll have to chat to you about the Mandabidi because I've, I've actually got, I'm working on a, well, I've actually got a full proposal here at the moment, and I'm chatting with some corporates around some sponsorship stuff for it, but coming back and giving the record, the, the record a crack in November yeah. and tying it in with actually men, um, Aboriginal or Indigenous mental health. So they're like visiting a whole heap of schools on the way back oh, man. and um, trying to engage with Specialised and Outride to actually get some bikes to give to the Indigenous youth. Yeah. Oh, that's um, a good I'll, yeah. I'll click your, the plan, what we're doing, and see if we can try and do something together. Definitely, mate. Please do. That sounds terrific. Yeah. That's sweet. Cool. Well, um, well, we covered off some good stuff there. It's the lower alcoholic beer. Well, um, Jack, mate, why don't you start by just giving? Because um, for first, I want to run down three main things that you did um, in the last couple of years that I I was following over on YouTube and and, and Insta. The uh, your Tour de France, uh, amazing chase. I love that story. Yeah. Also, your Everest thing, and then um, maybe some of the stuff you did around Japan uh, recently yeah, cool. as well. But before we get into that, maybe just give um, audience that don't really know about you, um, maybe tell them who you are and what you do. Okay, cool. So my name's Jack Thompson. Uh, I've developed the online name Jack Ultra Cyclist. What I and I, I somewhat regret sort of choosing that name. I'd like to be known as Jack Thompson, but it's sort of stuck. Yeah. Um, I'm a professional cyclist, but uh, I'm an ultra cyclist, so I. I undertake these extreme challenges or events each year and generally we document them in the form of films mm. uh, and the films have, I guess, a concurrent storyline. So it's always about, you know, breaking a record or breaking a, um, you know, a fastest known time. But at the same time, it's weaving in a, a second storyline, be that around mental health, be that around climate change or hunger um i'm looking to do more than i guess just create sort of cycling content it's cycling content with a with a i guess a bigger more powerful um message behind it and i'm based uh in girona spain so i grew up in perth western australia and i've been over here for for about uh four years wow that's so cool. And and you originally you're uh because I obviously got many mutual friends. Um and it's actually kind of funny. We might have just missed each other's entrance and uh exit away from Perth. Um, but um yeah, when you first got into cycling, you, you were sort of more into the competitive style of cycling. Yeah, so I like my story is like I started as a triathlete and I'd ask anyone listening not to hold that against me, but I was a little triathlete at school and um, at the time I actually suffered from from depression and what I found was that that was the triathlon and those three miniature goals each day, going for a swim, going for a run or going for a ride, they kept my mental health in check. And anyway, I went through school, uh, decided I wanted to go to university and gave the triathlon away. And um, my mental health really sort of disintegrated from here and I went to university and studied and got a degree but at the same time I developed the drug addiction so I went into rehab um, and I was fortunate enough to come out the other side after a pretty testing couple of years and my dad said to me look why don't we get you back on a bike and I thought you know what whatever dad tells me to do I'm not gonna do it because you know I'm a young (laughs) adult and I really don't I don't want to sort of abide by my dad's rules yeah 
And eventually I gave in and I got on a bike and I fell in love with it. And I started at, you know, more traditional racing and, you know, racing the, the sort of local Perth series. And that's how it all began. Um, so, yeah, that's I, I was originally a, a standard cyclist, I guess. Hmm. Was during that whole period uh, when you got back on the bike and, and maybe when you were doing triathlon as well, were you always, did you always enjoy the exercise more than the event? Like the training, was the training your favorite part? Yeah, I I, I enjoy the training and I, I sort of worked out over time that it's because they're like miniature goals in, you know, you're working towards a bigger goal, be that a race or, or an event, but it's, mm ticking off those miniature goals each day gives me a real sense of satisfaction. Mm. And I find I enjoy that sense of satisfaction on a daily level more than I do when it comes to race day or event day. Mm. And so, yeah, you, you bang on. It's like I was getting more enjoyment out of going and training for four or five hours or doing, you know, a set of intervals on the trainer mm. than I was actually lining up on a start line. And I guess that's what sort of transitioned me. Mm. Oh, that's really cool. Well, into the, I guess, the segue into the first, um, uh, I guess, big achievement that you had um, that I first um, really got amongst it was the the amazing chase, which of course was your um, you were basically racing the the, the Tour de France, trying to um, complete the twenty twenty one TDF route. And remember, you gave did you give them like a weak head start? And you were aiming to beat the peloton. That was that. Was that the game? So yeah, you, you're almost bang on. We gave them a ten day head start. So we let the peloton leave from it was Brest that year where they left. Yeah. They rode for ten days, and then we started ten days afterwards. And the concept was that we were going to try and beat them to Paris. So ride all twenty one stages. Um, basically transfer wherever they transferred. So we hopped in a car where they hopped in a car and we went to the next stage. And yeah, we, we managed to to tick it off and beat them to Paris two or three days before they arrived. Holy shit. And what that's so that would have been what, three and a half thousand Ks? Yeah. So it was and this is the funny thing, like it's three hundred and fifty K a day, right? For ten days. <laughs> which it's like they're big days, yeah. but on paper, that's not the hardest bit. The hardest bit is actually the transfers in between um, the stages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You imagine like you go and ride 150K and then it's like, all right, you know, pop your bike in the back of the van and we're going to drive for three or four hours. So your body sort of shuts down. Mm-hmm. You drive for three or four hours, you have something to eat, and then you've got to get out and go again. And then mm-hmm. at the end of that next like you've got to then hop back in the car for another three or four hours. So 350K of riding is is doable on a day-to-day basis, but then throw in like anywhere from four to like seven hours of transfer a day and the day suddenly disappears and you don't have a lot of time Mm. to actually sleep or recover properly because you're sitting in a car. And that was the most difficult part of it. Not the riding, but like the riding and and the transfers in between. Yeah. Well, when you first said you had to get in the car for the transfers, my first thought was, what was the car? Because uh, <laughs> that, right? Like, were you able to lie? Down? Was it a van? Like, what yeah. was it? So we did have a van. We had a big, it was like a camper van. Okay. But there were, like, you, you're, trying to, you're trying to get to the next stage as quickly as possible. And they're not all straight roads that you're driving. So you might be going down <laughs> the mountain, you might be, you know, going through a city. So it's, 
you're not just laying in the back of the car, you know, yeah. enjoying your comfortable sleep. You're in the back sort of getting rolled around <laughs> and you're trying to stuff some food in and you've got all your washing above you. And it's, oh, shit. it wasn't glamorous, but we got the job done. Wow. Did that process of getting back into the camper van, transferring, starting in the state, did that get easier as the days went on or not really? No, I think it, because it was like such an unaccounted sort of stress, I never I never thought about it to begin with. I thought, all right, I'll get in the car and I'll be able to sleep and eat. Yeah. And this is going to be great because I'll recover. But when I realized it was actually sort of creating stress, because there were other things like we were talking with media while we were in the car or we oh, yeah. were, you know, trying to get some social stuff up and it became almost like a stressful period being in the car. Right. And I actually like really enjoyed being on the bike because I was then sort of away. I was doing my thing. I was riding. Yeah. When I got in the car and I had the other guys in the car asking me questions, that it was just became yeah. like a stressful environment. <laughs> and I was like, "Get me out of here! I need to. I need to get back on the bike." Wow, it's crazy, isn't that? It's like the the reverse. The real challenge is the part off the bike. Exactly. It's yeah. Like I said, it wasn't expected, and so it threw a bit of a spanner in the works. Hmm. What was your favorite meal during that whole period? Oh, you know, it was funny. Like my cravings changed throughout that event. So, mm-hmm. you know, like at the beginning I was craving, like I, I don't remember what it was, but it was, you know, for example, like it was salty things. I wanted chips. I wanted, you know, crisps. I wanted salty stuff because I was, yeah, I, that's just what my body wanted. But as I moved through, I actually began to cr- to crave fats. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's because my body was sort of dipping into its fat reserves, but it got to the point in the last couple of days where I was hanging out for croissants, like slathered in butter. <laughs> so like almost like I'm talking like half a block of butter and a croissant and then like <laughs> a tiny little spread of jam. Oh, and like that was just hitting the spot. No way. So as far as a favourite meal... Uh, there were a couple of cheeky McDonald's feeds in there. They they oh, never yeah. disappoint. So McFlurry and a couple of cheeseburgers. No, that's good. McFlurry, yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. Okay, yeah. I like the croissant with the butter, yeah. I mean, if anyone's seen the videos of how croissants are made, it's pretty funny because, like, <laughs> it's just the all butter. butter. <laughs> folded like a million times. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And... Uh, when you were going, I guess so, because you're, you're essentially going through where, you know, the tour has been and then, I guess, finishing ahead, did you have, like, any um, like any memorable interactions with any of the spectators that were on the roads or any of the towns, um, anything like that? Yeah. So it was funny, like, at the beginning, because we were 10 days behind, it was really, like, remnants of the tour. You could tell it had been through there, like, there was, you know, some posters in towns and you know there's a bit of markings on the road but you know if you didn't know the tour had been on you wouldn't have known it had been through there so at the beginning it was like oh you know this is kind of cool because the guys were here 10 days before but as I got closer to the peloton there was sort of more remnants and you know you get to the point where there was you know people that had you know stayed in their caravans for you know an extra week after the tour had gone by but as as I actually caught the peloton, it was the day that they had a rest day in Andorra. I think it was the second rest day. Mm. 
I arrived in Andorra and all of the team buses were in Andorra. So I was descending and actually a couple of, of mates was Michael Hepburn and Shane Archibald. Oh, cool. They came out and met us. They weren't riding the tour that year, but they came out and met us. And that was pretty cool, actually, sort of descending into (laughs) Andorra and then doing one of the climbs with those boys because, you know, it really felt like I was part of the tour then. Yeah. And the bus around, I was with a couple of the lads, and and that was really good fun. (laughs) And what was actually probably my best memory as far as interactions go was the day that I caught, caught them that afternoon, the second stage, it was brutal weather. It was, you know, that tour itself was a very wet tour. Yeah. And we left from Andorra, uh, descended down the backside and into France. And basically the next climb that I went to, all of the caravans and all of the people were there in preparation for the following day. Oh, shit. And our van wasn't allowed to go through because at this stage the roads were closed. So I almost had my own... Um, my own miniature tour to France, you know, climbing up a few of these curves. <laughs> yeah. There's the people having barbecues and yeah, yeah. You know, they were actually undercover because it was raining, but you know, they'd come out and cheer you along and it was yeah. pretty special. It was yeah. it was good times. Oh wow, that's so cool. Because yeah, often you have to get up there like yeah, a couple of days before and yeah, camp out. That's I've it. seen a couple of videos before of people doing that and and oh that would have been an amazing atmosphere. It was actually that night, actually, come to think of it, I was close to finishing the second stage of the day and out of nowhere there was some cheering and some shouting and up ahead of me it was um, some of the SBS crew. It was Gerens and Anthony, I forget his second name now. Um, so Say it again. McCrossin? Yeah, McCrossin. Yeah, yeah. Those guys had come out to see us. And um, I I remember it clearly because it was pissing with rain and I I was actually wearing (laughs) some rubber gloves just to keep me warm. So I had rubber gloves (laughs) on under my cycling gloves. Right, right, yeah. And I was actually wearing a rain cap under my helmet to try and keep my hair warm. And I remember I've arrived and and Gero's put his hand out to shake mine and I've gone to shake his and I'm wearing a rubber rubber glove. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I thought, oh, what a, what a tool. Uh, doctor? But, um, yeah, good times. Oh, sick. Wow. I, you forget about that. The 3,500 Ks and the mountains of the tour, which is in the like, second, you know, for the yeah. last third as well. Like, wow. Although it probably was nice to have like a bit of that resistance on the legs by then. It was, um, you know what you'd like, for people at home, that one thing that I found sort of interesting about the tour is you watch it on TV and you watch them either going up or, you know, on the flats. Mm. But what you don't realise is that a lot of the roads that they're riding on are are major roads that have been shut for the day. Mm. And that's one thing that I really, I realised when I was doing it is that a lot of the times I was, you know, punting along on these major roads that I'm sure are amazing to ride on when they're closed, but when they're not closed, they're just, hells of roads to ride on because they're busy and there's chaos and yeah it was just something that's it's it's stuck it's stuck with me to this day just how sort of chaotic some of the road networks are and that in in france and yeah you sort of watch it on tv and think oh look this is great smooth sailing but in in reality like some of these roads are you know busy highways in in you know normal day in life Mm, yeah wow that's crazy. Um, definitely worth watching the, um, yeah, the video on, on all the videos on YouTube about that because it's pretty cool. Um, especially the end. I like when you finished. It's uh, 
Yeah, it must have been amazing. Finishing just like, oh, getting that one done. Um, a special a feeling. feeling. Um, that had been a couple of years in, in planning that. So to get it done was like, oh, it's done, you know. Yeah, like all the logistics behind it too, right, would have been yeah, yeah, challenging. Um, my favourite my favorite uh, exercise you've done so far, mate, is the, the Everesting um, mission, the 1 million um, metres. Uh, I think the story behind it is really, really good. Um, and, yeah, definitely love to hear, uh, I guess, why you chose to do this challenge um, and maybe explain a bit more for those who haven't seen it on YouTube yet. Yeah. So in 20, it was the end of 2021 and I was in Portugal at the time and I had this idea that I wanted to basically collaborate on a project with Portugal Tourism and Everest in all 26 of the 26 municipalities of Portugal and use it as a, a bit of a tourism um, promotion. Let's promote Portugal as a cycling destination. Yeah. Anyway, that project fell through for whatever reason. And I was, it was I think it was September or October that year. And I was thinking, what am I actually going to do next year? Like, I actually don't have anything planned. Yeah. And I thought, look, I still want to do this Everest thing. What could I do with Everest thing? And I thought, well, maybe I'll Everest once a week for an entire year and do 52 Everests. I thought that would be pretty crazy. But then I was thinking like an Everest is a one-day effort, you know, so I'm going to have sort of six days a week where I don't really know what I'm doing. Am I tapering for an Everest? Am I recovering from an Everest? Like it has to be more than just Everesting. Hmm. And so I did some maths I did it very quickly and I worked out that 52 Everest was around half a million. And I did some more really bad maths and calculated that, you know, I reckon I can ride a million meters of elevation in a year, including 52 Everests. And I thought, well, why would I do that? And I thought, well, let's try and raise some money for, for some different not-for-profits. Mm. So I thought, look, all right, I'm going to raise a euro for every meter I climb. And if I can climb a million meters, I'm going to try and raise a million euros. And basically like that, I called my dad back in Perth and I said, look, dad, I've got a concept for 2022. I'm going to Everest 52 times. I'm going to climb a million meters of elevation and I'm going to raise a million bucks. And he said, do you think you can actually do that? And I said, I'm not sure, but I'm going to give it a crack. Oh, and that was it. Yeah. That's how the concept sort of came to be. And I didn't really give it much thought told sponsors that's what I was doing. People told me I was crazy. <laughs> and on the 1st of January 2022, I kicked off this, we called it the, the Space Odyssey. So we were trying to put it all into perspective. What is a million metres and what does it look like? Yeah. And the only thing we could come up with was it's basically two and a half times the height of the International Space Station. So let's have a bit of a play with it. Let's, you know, run with a space theme. Yeah, yeah. And that's why we did a bit of had a bit of fun with the the NASA logo and some branding and we called it 1 million a space odyssey. Wow, that's mental. What what, what were the charities that you because it was three different ones, right? Oh, yeah, so we chose one in Australia, Kids Helpline. Oh yeah. Uh one in Africa, Strong Minds, which is um Basically, it's a, a program for women and children in Central Africa that equips them with a uh, counselling service. Nice. But the way that they do it is they actually equip the women that they're counselling with the skills to help another woman. Nice. So it's a scalable uh, charity. Very good, and yeah. then the third charity was uh, a charity called Outride, which is linked to Specialised. 
And it's all about getting kids on bikes and the benefits of, you know, riding a bike on a child's mental health. Mm, yeah, ripping. Okay. Three, yeah, three great pauses there. Um, <laughs> I like the, my first question that came to my head was when you were coming up with those, doing the maths, did you think you actually you could actually do it? But you already answered it saying you'd just give it a crack. I think that's the best answer you could do in the moment. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's the best like, positive energy, right? Like thoughts become <laughs> things. You just got to have a crack. That's it. Like the, the hardest thing, I guess, of last year was like, it was, you think of like any year, there's so much that happens in a year. Like how many times do you get sick? How many yeah. times is your flight delayed? How many times does shit just go wrong? Yeah. And that's the stuff that I never, ever accounted for. I thought, oh, yeah, on paper, like that's doable. Mm. But, you know, a week in when my fatigue levels are, fucking through the roof and I realized I still had 51 of these weeks to do and I actually worked out the first week I fucked up the maths and I was actually behind already and I was like fuck like this is a monster undertaking <laughs> that like things really sunk in and I started to realize yeah. like I'm, I'm in for a bit of a tough year yeah yeah but I guess um uh yeah, always have that motivation of one you got the drive to you know you're raising money for these amazing causes but also you've made the the social contract you know you've you've told everyone yeah. that's what you're doing right. and that's part of the motivator too right for better or worse that's it <laughs> that's it like it's so so social media is a difficult one because like you say i never i'd never coined it like the social contract but once you say you're going to do something like you have to own it <laughs> yeah. and yeah you know that did at times you know i thought fuck like i'd love to just hang the wheels up here and have a have an easy week but yeah. that coupled with obviously like the the charitable aspect of it just you know it did give me especially the charitable aspect like I was doing it yeah. genuinely to try and help other people yeah um it really helps to put it into perspective you know like sure it's hard what I'm doing but every night I'm going home I've got a partner at home mm. I've got a roof over my head I've got food in the fridge and I've got a family at home that support me. Mm. And you know, a lot of the people that I'm trying to raise money for don't have those sort of basic necessities for life. Yeah. And so it's it's easy for me to put it into perspective. It's like, you know, I'm having a tough day out here, but some of these people, like their whole lives are wrought with, you know, difficult times. And yeah. so, you know, if I can do this for a year and I can change some lives, then it's all worth it. Mm. Yeah. That's awesome. Um 52 average and didn't you you had to double up a couple didn't you like you did more than one a week a few times right yeah there was a couple where for what it like with travel so i did a little bit of travel to well i did some to the us to london there was like travel in there which meant that i lost days here and there yeah just travel days and um obviously had to make up for it i did get sick once um and that threw a bit of a spanner in the in the maths so i had a couple of very big weeks in and around that yeah um but yeah there was three or four where i did two everest in a week which was um you know what's funny they were actually not as hard as i thought hmm. they actually they were easier in the fact that like i had two big days a week and a couple of easier days around them as mm -hmm. opposed to one big day and five sort of still pretty big days mm. and so just the way that it broke up the week i actually found it quite manageable doing the doubles um and it almost gave me a break from 
um, the monotony of a of a standard week. So, oh yeah, okay, mixing it up a I, bit. Yeah, the weeks became super monotonous because I was basically doing like hill repeats every day, and like I built up a repertoire. Like Monday was one climb, Tuesday was another, and then you know all the way through to to, to Sunday. The Everest was obviously different every week, but the other days were all a blueprint of the ones before it. Mm. And so life on the bike became very monotonous. And I had to listen to a whole lot of music and book tapes just to sort of like keep the mind churning. Mm -hmm. Did you have like a a strategy like with your music and and those sort of things that you're trying to stimulate yourself with? Would you like hold back your music till you got to a certain point? Like I've heard people do that, Leo, they save the music yeah. to the end or I don't know. Were you doing anything like that? Yeah, so I've coined this. It's like I've started to call it like sensory starvation. Okay. And it's exactly that where like I, I love music and I could listen to it all day and I use that to my advantage. So I know that like an Everest gets tough around the halfway point. Yeah. So I'm not going to listen to any music until the halfway point, and then that's my reward for getting the halfway. Yeah. And then I know the second half is going to become easier because you know I'm listening to the tunes and I'm, yeah, you know, I'm away with the fairies. And like it is a really powerful technique to use. Mm. It's just you know it's like a it's a reward to, a, a reward scheme, but it's also like motivation when you actually flick it on. So it works in a couple of ways. Yeah. Yeah, sick. That is but the hardest part is the halfway point. I've only ever got to the halfway point. I was doing on Zwift and my yeah. uh, my original attempt was caught was made for this weekend, right? And um then we had like a little COVID lockdown, you know. Shout out to Melbourne because we had like one week of total lockdown in Perth, but it happened to be <laughs> when I was gonna do my Everest. So I was uh, like, ah, oh, I'll do it on Zwift, it'll be right. And I got halfway in and I'd had about eight hot cross buns because it was around Easter time. <laughs> I think it was either the fact I had all the hot cross buns available uh, in the Perth market or maybe it was just really hard at halfway point. <laughs> yeah, man, it's harder. I mean, the hot cross buns probably were sitting in the stomach causing a bit of grief. but Yeah, they were causing havoc in there, mate, big time. But yeah. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I like the the tool of saving the music to the second half. That's a um yeah, it's a good tactic. And I guess were you doing anything in the first oh geez, it just sounds ridiculous to say the first 10 Everest, but like say for the first couple of months worth of Everest, did you do anything during those that you stopped doing at the end, the last 20? Like did you change something up that stopped working for you? or add something in that was helping you? So what I, so I actually didn't tell anyone what I was doing until three months in. So like at the beginning, it was all like I was going and doing it and it was going up on Strava, but I hadn't told anyone what the plan was. Okay. So I was almost using it. Like my concept was like, let's try and build a bit of hype around this. Like what are people going to think I'm doing? Like try and build a bit of a buzz around it. Yes. And that was, that was good because it, I was sort of like running solo. I had no pressure on me. Like if I wanted to bail, I could bail, but yeah, I feel pretty bad about it myself, but you know, I could, if I really wanted to, I didn't have the social contract signed yet. <laughs> and, um, but what that period gave me was like a very good, um, like a test period to really like dial in, you know, my nutrition strategy, yeah. my yeah. packing list. Like when I went to an Everest, cause generally I drive to them, uh, and I'd sort of do the average and then I'd drive home, which meant that I had to have like a very precise 
you know, a number of gels, yeah. um, a toolkit with me, like clothing choices. Mm. And it got to the point where at the end, like that regime was so well dialed yeah. that like I wouldn't even pick a climb to Everest until the night before the actual Everest or the, the morning before the actual Everest. I'd then jump on booking.com. I'd book a motel somewhere cheap nearby. I'd spend an hour packing my stuff and I'd just shoot off the night before and go on Everest the following day. At the beginning, there was a lot more planning went into it. Like, yeah. where am I going to go? Like, what's the weather doing? All of that sort of stuff. And at the end, it got to the point because I wanted to Everest on a different climb every week that I just accepted the weather. There's the weather. There's nothing I can do about that. Yep. I just needed to choose a climb that's suitable that I can basically get up and down it quickly and I'm going to have all the gear to go and do it. Mm. And so like my the preparation became a whole lot smoother leading into the Everest. Mm. And it got to the point where it was like, I would do some days I do like six and a half thousand meters without actually stopping for a break. Like I'd grab my gels out of the car, but I wouldn't stop at all because like I was just like finely tuned at Everesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's probably how my body adjusted the most. Like I just built the resilience to just sit on a bike and go up and down for, you know, eight, nine hours before taking a break. Amazing. What, what, what bike were you doing it on? You were doing on a specialized, like a tarmac or what were you on? I, so I mixed to begin I with, I was on a mountain You did a mountain bike one. I know that one because I thought this guy's nuts. You added the mountain bike one <laughs> in there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I started on the Roubaix and then yeah. I went to the Athos which is the oh. super light specialized. Yep. And then I needed to mix things up because I was, I just needed like a stimulus, mm. a change in the stimulus. So I, I got the gravel bike, put some flat bars on it and sent, sent it up a few gravel climbs, Love which was that. pretty nasty. Was like it? my hand just descending and climbing on the gravel. I got oh. like mad blisters. Yeah. But it was good because like it was a mental reset. Yeah. And like I was, you know, climbing places that had like amazing vistas as opposed to yeah. some of the climbs were like, you know, these residential climbs that were great because they were steep, but mm. there wasn't a lot to look at. Mm. As soon as I got on the gravel, it really opened up terrain, you know, close to home as well. That meant I could, you know, get up a little bit later the day of the Everest and drive there myself and and do it as opposed to having to go and sleep somewhere the night before. Mm. Yeah, it's wicked. Um. Oh, yes. Okay. You finished the million in Perth. I had something on that day. I couldn't come. I was devastated at Rebold. But the, the fact that you finished the million metres in Perth, was that always a plan? Nah, the plan? No. My plan was to just try and finish it as soon as I could and then come <laughs> back to Perth for a holiday, right? Yeah. And then I was I got sick and pushed things back. And I thought, you know what, like maybe this is a cool opportunity to to engage with all the people that I actually grew up cycling with and like my sort of Perth mates. And uh, we did a bit of planning around it. We thought, you know, where can we actually knock this off? And, uh, you know, Raybold was a, was a climb that as a youngster, I always used to, you know, go and do a few repeats on and we thought, well, why not go and knock it off yeah. on Raybold? So <laughs> yeah, we, we finished it off on Raybold Hill on, I think it was the 29th of December and just like yeah. that, it was all done. Yeah, that's right. I was going to Bay Crits. That's why I couldn't be there. Um, uh, yeah, that's right. But Rebold is for anyone who's from, uh, well, yeah, most people um, around Australia. But it's it's like a, well, there's two. It's a, it's a, it's a sort of a 
45 second steep sort of climb on pavement. It goes up to a cul-de-sac, a bit of a lookout. And then um, there's a sort of a, uh, like a path, a walking path um, that you can ride up, but not down um, that sort of goes down the other side. And that's like a two minute little climb as well. It's quite nice to go up and um, yeah, pretty sure little... Jack Bobridge's um, lead out is still the, um, the KOM on that climb. Is that <laughs> to this day? I think so. With the old yeah, right. lead out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to crack a little climb. Um, yeah. but it was like there was a really good turnout of people. Like I didn't really know what to expect, and I hadn't been back to Perth for three years. Yeah, just with COVID and all. So I think it was a hundred and you know, hundred, hundred and fifty odd people down. Yeah, and um, plenty of um juniors as well because I was doing it. Uh, yeah, I was taking some of the juniors out for a hills ride the day before, and we were sitting at a cafe afterwards, and they're like, "Oh, you're going to Jack's um day tomorrow," and they're all talking about it, and they were really they yeah, never met right. before, mate, and they were super inspired. Um, it was sick. Yeah, I love really the energy. Cool. Yeah, yeah, it was a great, great way to knock it off, and. You know, it was funny, like when I finished that, we went back to Wembley Cycles as a specialised dealer and yep. we had a, um, we had like did a bit of Q&A there and just, you know, had a great chat to some people mm. and I got home and I don't know what it is if I caught something or, but like I went, I went down sick real hard for like three or four days with like a stomach bug. Oh no. <laughs> and like, I just couldn't enjoy it, you know, like I was oh. quick as a dog, so it was almost like the biggest anti-climax ever. <laughs> Damn. Well, it couldn't have been anything yeah. with the cycles because I used to work there and it's a terrific establishment. Um, good shot. John Carney is a good good lad. Ah, oh, John's an absolute lad. I saw him just uh, on the weekend, him and the Tuck Knots actually. And, ah, uh, nice. You know, Reese during uh, Reese got hit by a kangaroo during the race. Yeah. Bizarre. Shit. Yeah, he's all right, but like just – so random, but yeah. just came out, clipped the back of his bike when they were in the in the pillow descending, and we right. came, yeah, we came around the corner. And you can see this on the on the Seven Gravel Race uh, Facebook page, and um, we came re- around the corner, and Reese is just like splayed on the floor, and he was like, yeah. "Oh yeah," um, we thought he'd crash, but he was actually, yeah, it turned out a kangaroo just jumped out in front of him. But, no way, um, well, he, he's all glad he's okay. Yeah, yeah, he's good, but um. Yeah, Wembley Cycles, uh, great specialised dealer. Well, I think they do Trek now too. Um, oh, yes. Okay, so Japan, mate, big um, special. Uh, when I saw your first video of you doing the travelling to Tokyo, I was like, oh, cool, because Megan and I, get a, my fiance Megan and I, we're going to Japan February next year. And, um, oh, nice. Uh, you love it. The culture of Japan, yeah. Uh, it's just so seems so interesting. It's the only place I want to go to in the world. Um, so when I saw your video uh, about you being there, I was like, "Oh, cool!" And your challenge. Um, but this one was uh, what was it Tokyo to Osaka, and you're tr- that distance about five hundred k's, and you were trying to beat the record for it. But what was the significance yeah. of the distance, the the Tokyo to Osaka? So basically, the first road to exist in Japan was, they call it Highway 1, and it was a road that connected Tokyo and Osaka. And it's actually been, I forget how many years this cannibal concept's been running, but in Japanese cycling culture, there's been this concept of, they call it a cannonball, and it's how fast can you ride between the two cities following this Highway 1 road? And I'd actually been and done it 
a couple of years ago, not not as like a record attempt, but as yeah. a, a with a with a sponsor as a bit of an activation. And it was just like I'm, you know, I'd been to Japan before, but similar to you, like it's one of these places that is so like culturally diverse. Yeah. Such an extreme when compared to somewhere like Perth. Yes. Um, but at the same time, it's a very safe place to go and ride a bike. And it just so happened it was cherry blossom season, that little period that we had picked to go and nice. do the record. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we, we basically, it was a really rushed trip now that I think about it. Just we had like a couple of windows that we had to sort of get in and get out. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was it looked a little stressful in that original video. Oh, mate! Like we'll get straight into it. I like it. Japan is a very safe place to ride, but it is a very, very busy place to yeah. ride, especially I'm if you're on like say highway. Safest, though, I just cause yeah. because of what you just said, then it's, it's so busy. I would think it would be like maybe not so safe to ride. So when I say safe, I mean like um, the people are very courteous. Like yes. there's no road rage. Um, there's no one trying to knock you off your bike. There's no one throwing a glass bottle at you because you're in life. Or it's like, yeah. you know, you're, you're safe in that respect. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like there's 20 million people living across, you know, Osaka, Tokyo and Nagoya, which is the city in the middle. Mm. And so it is like an inherently very busy, busy place. And this Highway 1 actually is the road that connects these three major cities. So... You know, I, I forget what happened last time I did it. Like, I don't remember it being as busy. Um, and this time when I went and did it, like, all, like the weather wasn't good. Like, we had rain all day for 18 and a half hours. And perhaps that sort of played with the traffic a bit. But yeah, like, it was like a series of intervals. Like, you'd get to a traffic light. You'd sprint away from the traffic light to try and build up a bit of momentum. And then you'd get to the next traffic light. And it was like this stop-start all day for 18 and a half hours yeah that's hard and it was brutal like you just couldn't find a rhythm <laughs> and so like you know like i'd recommend going and riding in japan but i wouldn't recommend going and doing highway one mm. so like venture off the beaten track mm. and like, like I, I've, I've done riding there outside of this and like still to this day like one of the best places i've ridden really? um but like keep off the main roads like it's just yeah. Better roads to be ridden than Highway 1. Yeah, okay. Oh, it's maybe you changed my mind about bringing the bikes on on now. I'm thinking about it. It's going to be a honeymoon, so, you know. Ah, uh, yeah. I don't know. No bikes, the <laughs> mate. Well, <laughs> maybe we'll hire some, but I love the concept of just one, that road being called Highway 1. That just sounds elite, like the first one. And the Cannonball, what a name. Like, yeah, it's really super <laughs> Japanese. Yeah, like, did you, um, you, you did break the record, didn't you? Yeah, we managed to break the record by about half an hour. So it was... Oh, shit. Yeah, it was you pretty cool. Like, to begin with, I thought, oh, like, this is do it. Like, the average speed, actually, on paper isn't that crazy. Yeah. But then you have to, like, take into account the traffic lights and the busy nature of the roads. And it is actually, like, it's a hell of a challenge. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was... Good way, you know, good to get the record, but it was a really tough day out. Mm, yeah. Um, uh, what was the finishing meal? Did you have time to, to, to have a finishing meal, like a nice dinner or something like that? It's funny you ask, huh? So 
like here in Spain, everything happens really late. So like we'll go and get dinner. And if we go for dinner at 830, like we're one of the early birds. Whoa. And we're just sort of in that mindset of you go and get dinner late. And anyway, we finished it around, must have been around eight. Oh, it must have been around 7.30, central Tokyo. We got in the car, drove to the hotel, had a shower, freshened up, and went to go get dinner. And, like, nothing was open. We couldn't find anywhere that was open. And the one place that we found was, like, this real high-end sashimi bar. Oh, yeah. So I ended up, like, you know, any other night I would have been stoked having sashimi. But <laughs> this was one night where I really wanted to pig out and get a burger in me and, like, enjoy the fact that I'd burnt so many calories. Yeah, yeah. And we were eating you know, <laughs> little bits of fish. <laughs> yeah, not ideal, but uh, adds to the story. That's it. It's all it's part a, of it. How often does that happen? Eh? Like I'm sure everybody listening has been on one of those bike rides and you've gotten home there's just, you know, there's nothing in there or you've gone to eat somewhere and it's closed and you're hungry. And... Yeah. <laughs> oh, another, I, I got just... a I was going to say, I've got another funny story about another Perth fella. So a couple of weeks ago, Zach Williams was here. Yep. And um, there was an event here called the Tracker, which is a 360-kilometre gravel ride. Yeah. And I just finished the Tracker. Zach and I came home and we are like, yeah, let's get some Maccas on order. So we jumped on Glovo, which is like Uber Eats, ordered our Maccas, said 10 to 15 minutes. I went and had a shower. 30, 40 minutes later, there's still no Maccas. And we get a message to say, oh, like your order's been cancelled. So, like, you know, shit, like we need some we need some greasy food. So Zach's jumped on his phone and tried to order Burger King. Oh, yeah. And the same thing's happened. As we've gone to order, couldn't get any Burger King. What's so we ended up at the local kebab shop getting a serving of greasy goodness there. Yeah. But like, yeah, like you say, like what are the, the odds that when you really are craving that sort of food, yeah. you can't get it? Yeah, wow, that's funny. Like you say that, it just reminds me of the story when I was I'd done this big ride. I'd finished up in the city, and you know some big hills ride. And then I I, I used to live forty k's from the city in Clarkson, and um, which is obviously why I grew up like the the strong tough man I am right now. And um, <laughs> you know thirty or forty k train ride, and then I just lived off the train station, so I I ridden to, down the train, and I was bonking halfway through the train trip. But I was like, all right, I'll get home. And I'll in the train, I knew two stops before I got home. If I Uber eated a subway, it would be at my yeah. door when I got there. And I'm like, beautiful. So Uber eated the subway for delivery. And I got home a couple of minutes early. I was like, oh, I'll jump in the shower. Um, jump in the shower. I was delirious. I don't know what I was doing. And, <laughs> you know, they don't wait for you to get out of the shower, the Uber people. And I came downstairs and... The dude had cancelled my order because I wasn't there. Oh. He'd taken the subway back to subway, and I was no way. Uh, this this was like ten years ago, and I still remember it now. That's how dark I was, and um, I think I, I drove off there. Meatballs. Ah, oh, I know. I can't even remember what I got. I was just, you know, ah, uh, yeah. I went and paid for another one. Yeah, you you were a man in need of a sub. Yeah, man, I wasn't need of a sub. Yeah. <laughs> well, good good segue actually because i didn't realize until just this morning i saw um uh you know your latest video about your new specialized rig but you're going to unbound how about that yeah holy moly so it's a um i don't like i don't do a lot of gravel 
Yeah. And this year I thought like, because I'm like the body needs a bit of a rest this year. Last year was pretty, yeah. pretty onerous on the body. Yeah. And so I'm doing a few things that like I wouldn't normally do and unbound's one of them. So I've been doing a bit more time on the gravel and uh, dialing in the setup. Yeah. And yeah, in two weeks head over to, to Kansas to, to give that a stab. Oh man, how good. That's so sick. Um, yeah. have, you, have you ever met, uh, say, have you ever met, uh, there's three guys that you might know that are going, um, Adam Blazovic is going, um, he's, yeah, I met, I uh, he's him last year. Yeah. yeah Cause he, he went over to, I think he was staying in Andorra, maybe Girona. No, Girona. Yeah. And he's going there. Girona, I think. Yeah. Must have been Girona. Cause he's, he's moved, he's coming there next, well, on Friday. Um, oh, cool. and Matthew Bird and then Tasman Nankervis. I know they're all three Aussies that are coming over to race it along with Trekkie and um, a couple others. Did but... you say Matt Burton? No, Matt Bird. No, not Bird. Uh, <laughs> not Burton. That would be funny. I'm sure he'd do well, though. Um, but, yeah, if you see I don't know the guys... other guys. I don't know the other guys, but are they doing, like, the 200k, 200 miler? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah Tasman's nice. doing the um, – he's part of the Lifetime Grand Prix with Trekkie. Um, ah, Cool. Yeah, and and Blas is going for the uh, he's doing all the world's gravel series um, oh, events, nice. and he wants to do some of the, the US stuff. So there'll be plenty of Aussies there too. So it'd be cool. You guys will link up and uh, yeah, you know, look after I, each other. I think it'd be a cool event. Huh? like oh. I, I don't know. I've never been anywhere or like done anything on this sort of scale. You know, in terms of participation and like, I think it's massive. Yeah, and like we were chatting about it on the weekends with some of those boys, and we were saying like, there's, "What do you compare it to? Like, how do you even prepare for that? Because the distance yeah. and even the terrain and uh, the remoteness as well, you know, the type of yeah, oh. yeah, it's a big old day. Um, so yeah, what I'm I'm going to get there a few days early. Like, I was just booking flights because. Like I want to get like just with the time zone change and everything as well. Like a, it's one of those ones you want to get a bit acclimatized and just work out the lay of the land a little bit so you don't go into it too green. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And also you need a good setup too. Um, that's it. Good setup. So you're going to be running. Is... What are you? What are you running this for this bike? Uh, on tires, I'm actually going like 47 mil tires. So I'm going the big boys. So I'm racing the 350 miler, which is the slightly longer one. Um, no surprise. <laughs> but so I've gone with like a slightly heavier setup just because. Durability. Yeah. I don't want to risk punctures and mm. yeah. It's going to be a long day. Huh? Yeah. That, that town gets smashed. It's like yeah. just seeing the, the drone overhead shots of all the starters in the pen, like. Uh, <laughs> do you have you got a special what what kit are you gonna wear because some people go pretty wild on their kits or have you got your um uh, maybe a special kit sorted for it yeah so i think velocio are doing like they do like a series of kits for the people who like race it yeah so i'm not sure what colorways oh, they're cool. doing this year yeah but then and our specialized are also doing us all custom Custom painted divergers, so well divergent crux. Nice. So that's a bit of a surprise as well. So it's going to be like I'm not taking anything with me. Like I'm just going to get there and you know obviously I'll get the bike given to me, get the kit given to me. Beautiful. So all surprises. That's pretty cool. And also traveling without the bike will be nice too, eh? 
Oh yeah, bless. <laughs> but Nothing to worry I have, about. I have to say, the Specialized Crux is one beautiful looking rig. Um, I saw yeah. uh, one a full blinged out one in the flesh last year at um, this gravel race in um, uh, in Warrnambool. They call it the Dirty Warning. so it's like the gravel version of the Melbourne Warning. Ah, uh, nice. Uh, yeah, it's elite, mate. So cool. Um, two forty six k's, and and um, Jensen uh, Playwright was there, and he was just getting amongst it, and he borrowed someone. One of his friends owns a bike shop there, Project One Bikes. Um, the owner had lent him his Crux because he lost his oh, team wow. bike um in a river, and yeah, right. uh, yeah, I can't share the stories. His story to share, but um. It's a, if you know Jensen, it's a ridiculous story. But anyway, he lost the bike and he got you know the Lapierre, and then he got given this crux to ride. And holy shit, mate, it was fully blinged out. Nice and, um, oh, mate, the specialized bikes, they're just, yeah. I mean, I you can tell I didn't used to work for a specialized dealer, but they are just amazing specimens. Yeah, they're super nice. Yeah. Everything's just engineered so well. So much thought goes into it. Like yeah. it's like an apple of the cycling world. Yeah, yeah, it is. Oh, can't wait to see uh, the sort of content you put out for for Unbound. It'd be yeah, sick. Mate. Yeah, cheers, mate. Well, um, almost had an hour. Uh, Jack, mate, so cool to talk to you, mate. Really yeah, cool. good to chat, man. Yeah, I feel like I know you, but I actually, funny enough, in Perth, we don't know each other, which is crazy. Yeah, I know, it's weird, huh? We know half <laughs> Perth, but we don't know each other. Yeah, I know, and little alone cycling Perth too. Um... that's another episode of the press room podcast done and dusted thank you so much for listening hope you enjoyed this one don't forget to leave a five-star review on spotify or on apple and write something funny if you enjoyed it uh shout out to everyone in the vela games league uh my team without remco oh it's gonna be tough now but you can get some sick prizes on there um so good luck to everyone in the league thanks to all the patreons thanks to zwift attacker smith optics the whole crew. Legends, we'll be back for another episode next week. It's Kel O'Brien. See you then.